Well, we look back on the pandemic as the great age of YouTube. Welcome to Five O'Clock. I'm Thurl Timpson. The promises of the internet, one of the promises has been putting us in touch with our crowd, our peeps, people with a similar interest. When we find that channel, those folks, uh, it's a kind of ecstatic connection. And such was my experience with Tone Bass, a YouTube channel devoted to featuring the great pianists of our day, to talking about the piano, about music. So what if you're not a pianist or a musician? Well, that's the thing. This channel has a really beautiful, broad appeal. There's always been a certain mystery about playing the piano and about pianists and composers. And uh, folks are curious. Today, I'm talking to the host of Tone Bass, Ben Lottie. Welcome to Five O'Clock. Thanks for having me, Thurl. It's great to be here. It's really cool to have you on. I love this channel. Uh, I want to share it with the world. Um, now, as as with most good channels, it's because it has a great host. So really nice job. Thank you. Tell us about you. Well, uh, how much do you want to know? <laughs> um, well, let, <laughs> the YouTube let version. Let me clarify a few things. Uh, everything you said is true, but I just want to be very specific. I am the host, creator, producer of the Tone Based Piano YouTube channel. I'm also the, this is derived from my work as the head of piano at Tone Base, the company, which is an outstanding, innovative music education platform. Uh, it has a premium subscription channel. I've produced a lot of content for that. And the stuff I make for YouTube is, I wouldn't say it's necessarily directly, always directly promoting that, but it does often, if if you've noticed, use interview footage, lesson content that I've produced with great pianists. So the fun thing about the channel on YouTube is that I get to take this long form educational content and excerpt from it according to different topics and make something fun um, that's related to whatever my YouTube concept happens to be. So it's a kind of hybrid of what we're doing on the subscription channel, which I recommend all listeners check out. Uh, with my own crazy ideas of about, about piano and about music that I think would appeal to broader audiences. Yeah. And so, yeah, I have to say, so when I first started watching and the website itself, you know, I was telling a friend about it yesterday. It's kind of like Masterclass, right? This website that came out a few years ago and featuring all kinds of people, actors, chefs on there, basically giving a Masterclass. So that's what this is, a music instruction which right. most it, of us musicians are very familiar with that form. You're right to mention Masterclass. That was an influence on the founders of the company. Okay. And uh, as was Spotify, Netflix, different kinds of subscription entertainment content uh, channels. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, what we're doing is, well, if you call it entertainment, you know, that's a problem, Daryl, because this is serious art we're talking about here. But <laughs> and it's also education. So we were like, well, can't we have it both ways? Can it be both um, inspirational, which is a euphemism for entertaining and in our case, and educational at the same time? And so masterclass.com will have Itzhak Perlman teach you the violin for three hours. I don't think that's enough time to get anywhere on the instrument. <laughs> it literally starts by saying, here's how you hold the bow. And by the end, he's talking about the most you know, high-minded interpretive details. 
we were like, all right, rather than having one great musician teach for a few hours uh, and then have a, you know, masterclass.com has celebrities on all fields, like you were mentioning, um, teaching for a couple hours. We say, how about hundreds of hours with dozens of great artists teaching the same instrument? You know, there you might actually be able to build a true resource um, you know, for for piano lovers, amateurs, and even as we're finding professionals are very interested in what their colleagues are saying. Um, they're interested in the content for their students and te- and teachers as well everywhere. Uh, it's it's a great resource. For oh, them. It, it's an amazing treasure. You know, it's just it's as though you're sitting down with one of these really fantastic pianists. Um, you know, I was a conductor and. So there was some videos online back in the day where Leonard Bernstein is teaching or that kind of thing. And, you know, it made a big difference to me. And just to watch the great conductors, right? For me, it was was less conducting, although I've seen some amazing old Bernstein uh, footage and content, as we call it today. But for me, it was Glenn Gould. Some of the greatest piano, like the sort of prototype decades ago for what I do, I feel like is Bruno Monsignon sitting down with Glenn Gould at a piano talking about Bach um, and having Gould um, break down in detail the way he thinks about it and then have him articulated at the piano. This was so exciting for me to see this kind of thing when I was a teenager. And weirdly, I just think that I'm kind of making some version of that with artists of today. Uh, I want to get to Glenn Gould, but first you've done several videos with Seymour Bernstein. Who is he? You're already well, he, chuckling. First of all, he's older than Glenn Gould would be if Glenn Gould were still alive wow. by five years. That's that's how uh, long this man has lived, and he's he would also be Glenn Gould's arch nemesis, uh, as I've I think portrayed on the channel. Um, Seymour does not like Glenn Gould, so I, I wanted I, to get into that. Yeah, I will get to that, but let's just talk about Seymour for a second. So Seymour has lived kind of a peculiar and a beautiful piano career. And it's a little bit off the beaten path, a different beaten path than Gould, obviously, who also went off the beaten path, but (laughs) Seymour retired from, from public performance at age 50. He's now almost doubled that number in age. So he spent the last half of his life dedicated to teaching, authoring really important, really valuable uh, pedagogical books for, for pianists, piano manuals, my own two hands. My own, two, My own hand. two hands. So, so I came across this book back when I was studying piano, and it was great. It was really getting into the just the physics of you know the hand. Yeah, and um, he was known to amateur pianists, to the pedagogy community, teachers, uh, but he was actually less known to my world in the ivory tower of Juilliard. You know, we mm. I hadn't heard of him until Ethan Hawke made a documentary about him. <laughs> Uh, I saw that you know, eight, eight, nine years ago. Um, and I was like, who's this Seymour Bernstein guy? You know, like what, why is, why does he, why does this pianist have a documentary of all people? But then once you watch it or once you meet him or you spend any time with Seymour Bernstein content, you realize he's kind of got something magical about him, a twinkle in his eye, a kind of command and authority over um, every nuance of, of piano technique and expression and he's very opinionated, which makes for great content because it makes, <laughs> makes some people really excited and other people really mad. And turns out that's not a bad thing uh, uh, to to put on the Internet. And so he gets a lot of clicks, gets a lot of views, and he's got a lot of valuable stuff to say. And I feel like I have a good chemistry with him. So we've done some cool stuff together sitting at the piano. Yeah, you sit at the piano. 
a lot of times you make yourself the guinea pig. Um, you'll sit there and and take a, an online lesson from him, and then of course break into conversation about this, that, or the other. Yeah, which um, I like this format. I I sort of started it with him. I did a version of this with the late Leon Fleischer, but it was less lighthearted. I mean, uh, it was very. I had to sit there and play the pathetique for Fleischer, and he gave <laughs> like an oracle, you know, like these these incredible pronouncements about the depth of Beethoven interpretation. Seymour does his own version of it, but in this whimsical, playful way. And, you know, so he'll get serious, you know, he'll slap, but, but it's also play. It's funny. He'll slap my wrist and say, no, no, no. What, what are you doing? That's completely wrong. You know, he'll just say just these really extreme things. Um, you know, he doesn't mince words. And I think I like to think that I'm somebody who can take that and not be offended, but actually be uh, delighted by that kind of, um, I don't know, workshopping of, of music and people seem to really love being a fly on the wall for that kind of thing. And so I once I made one, I was like, I have to make more. So I've done several uh, several pieces of very popular intermediate repertoire where I'm sitting with Seymour, kind of pretending to be a piano student, even though I, I can play this stuff. But he genuinely helps me think of it in a new way, feel it in a better way. And then you see the appreciation in the comments, people saying, first of all, thank you for pretending to be you know, as piano student for Seymour, we, we know you can play better than that. Um, but also just people say, if we can see Ben Lottie learning and actually getting better at his level, it actually inspires people. They're like, okay, you can't, people, everyone's always improving. There's not some level you reach as a pianist, which is the master of all things. The greatest pianists in the world can all get better. They're all, I mean, they don't want to hear that probably, but they, there's always something they could bring more to their playing. And Seymour's the type, Cool, let you know, no matter who you are, that you can do even better than you're doing. So yeah, but he's also very open himself, which is amazing. I mean, he's in his nineties. Um, you, you know, I think when you get, you know, in your eighties, nineties, um, you're just you're pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, you're just ready I, to go with it. I can't remember my past lives, so I don't know if I ever made it there, but um, I'm assuming that if I were 80 or 90, like Seymour says. I I'm 95. I'm 96 now. I can say whatever the hell I want, you know. So that's got to be pretty uh, pretty liberating. But yeah, well, I mean, I remember one time you were talking about Chopin's hand, right? Seymour's yeah. got his hand up here, and and he said, you know, I was Chopin. <laughs> well, what's great about Seymour is he sticks with the bit. He kept like he's a, he's a comedian, you know. Good, yeah, comedian, he's a comedian. A good comedian doesn't laugh at their own joke or break character right right after they tell the joke. He they they let it they let the audience feel that joke for a while before they break. He didn't break for like a whole hour. He just every time it came back up, he kind of gave me a deadpan look and said, "You know that I was. I'm, can I remind you again? Yet again, I was Chopin. I am I am the living embodiment of of Chopin." And it's funny because some people don't get that humor, and so you'll see a comment with people saying, "Oh, the arrogance! This man thinks he's Chopin." I mean. Can you actually take that seriously? So anyway, he's he's a lot of fun, um, but also serious, passionate musician and educator, which is inspiring to me because I I want I want all this to be fun. You know, for a lot of people, piano lessons are the most serious, awful time of their lives. And I'm like, wow, that's that's sad. Yeah, but that is sad. I, I mean, talk about that a bit, because uh, is that is that the teacher? Um, and there's a lot of fear around the piano. You know, I have people over to parties 
And um, they say, oh, I played a little bit. I say, sit down and whatever. And they just pull back. Yeah, it's a, it's a culture. I mean, it's a big topic, um, but it's not any one teacher. Uh, I'm, I'm as guilty of it because when you enter into the, you, to this in this society, especially in this country, you assume a role and you feel like there's pressure from the parents. There's pressure from, you know, there's expectations about what the student is supposed to do and learn when at the piano. And then it's easier to conform to the conventions that have been set around you. And so some of those conventions are, or one of the predominant ones that I think has been very negative is to take, especially younger students and say, hey, this is how you make music. You, You take this recipe and you follow it exactly. And if you get anything wrong in this recipe, you're wrong and you're bad and you should be punished. <laughs> and don't add any other ingredients. <laughs> and and so then you wonder like, huh, how is it that music is the most popular thing in the world, most beautiful of all types, all genres, and and classical music still to this day is beloved by, you know, just countless millions around the world. We don't need to pretend like it's dying at all. And yet you kind of feel like it doesn't have much of a future when you you see a kid coming out of his piano lesson crying every week. So what's with that? I mean, there's just, it's it's a, a, a way of regarding music and music learning um, that I think has been more detrimental to, than not. It's basically selected, it's selected for a certain type of person who can live up to that expectation every week. They do come back with the recipe ready to go and just as they say, and it actually, I think, breeds a kind of, um, uh, la- it, it, it breeds a a kind of lack of artistry, actually, because it makes you feel like to be a musician is to follow orders, and to be a truly great yeah. musician is is to come up with your own orders and and command the music how you feel it should be, and that's much harder to teach. And um, if you don't have students enjoying and loving the act of learning and practicing on some level, obviously sometimes there's just hard work that has to be done. But yeah. if it's not, if it's not, you know enveloped in a genuine passion for oh my gosh i i love that i have to work on this now because i know what this beautiful result is and my teacher's helping me enjoy this and feel like i can achieve it and i and i have people around me who i get to play for you know and and impress or whatever the other thing might be um you know if you don't have that then i i don't know why people are wasting their time spending money on piano lessons it's it's really not helpful it's maybe for discipline purposes or something but that's ugh. You know, that can't be well, the only well, thing. Well, oh, yeah. Now we can go down the masochism route. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've spent hundreds of hours and sometimes I've asked myself, yeah. am I just a masochist? But no, it's so important, like you say, uh, to, I think in any art, uh, to uh, make that step, transition, from it just being a discipline to uh, expressing, once uh, connecting, feeling happy, feeling joy. And the sooner the better. And I think we always have to kind of remind ourselves that, you know, I'll get up in the morning and just kind of start playing on autopilot. And, um, you know, certain teachers' words come up in our in our heads. And so I think this is why this, um, why YouTube in general and, and why your channel has, has been great because it puts other uh, thoughts and words um, from other teachers and, you know, you experience some of that joy. And it's a nice balance to, you know, our own lessons back in the day. It's really important if you have a healthy culture of any activity, uh, whether it's a artistic or an athletic one or an academic one, if you want a healthy culture of that, you have to have 
a community where any one person doing it can see that other people are doing it and that other people are doing it with passion and enjoyment and and are excelling in it. And the what the one of the tricky things socially, especially in America, about piano education, about music education in general, is it's very private. It's, you know, imagine the suburban piano teacher. Uh, the, the kid goes there, they're by themselves, they don't see any of the other students. They have to take lessons, they go home, they have to practice by themselves. You know, compare that with other kinds of cultures of of participation, like youth sports, for example, which I participated in. Uh, you see everyone else is doing it too, and and they're doing it at different levels. But you know, and it's, it can be hard sometimes, but it's fun. And, and then you watch it on TV. You turn on the TV, and people are talking about the same game, and you see great athletes doing that that at the highest level. Why don't we have that? You know, a kid's going to want to play more piano if they see that five other people their age are doing it at different levels and playing different pieces. And, you know, and it's like, oh, what is that cool piece that that kid's playing? I want to go listen to that. I'm going to ask my teacher about that. And then you turn on not TV that I know of, but YouTube and look, oh, now I can watch people who are really good at this, talk about it and, 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 and enjoy it and laugh while they're, while they're experiencing it. And, but also like, you know, show that it's a serious spiritual activity at the same time. I have so much potential. I think there's so much more content, so much more media that could be made that helps to promote a, a culture of participation in music um, and and in the piano, especially, which is the most solitary of instruments. It's the most solitary, like you say. And and I think I sought the piano out for that reason. <laughs> and that's one thing I like about YouTube is it's just, yep. you know. I'm I'm in my you know bed watching it or you, you know. don't actually have to be around others, but you I get to identify with people you're watching on the screen. And it's the same if I watch a analysis of a of a sporting event. I don't have to be at the event. I don't have to know any of the people talking about it. I like that I'm alone and that but I get to feel like, okay, this thing that I get to do and enjoy, it's even better now because I get to watch the best in the world do it and talk about it and, and you know, tone base that's kind of what we're trying to do. It's like, Hey, look, you can have heroes in piano. Like it, it helps a kid to want to keep playing, you know, practicing soccer. If he's got Messi as a hero on his wall, it helps a kid help practice, keep practicing piano. If he's got Horowitz or Gould on his wall, you know, or has content that he can consume and say, wow, this is so amazing. I can't stop watching this. I, now I really just that feeling where you go to a good recital and you're like, now I want to go practice. This makes me want to go to the piano and, and see how, what I can do there. You know, we need more of that. Let's stop for a minute. And I want to mention our sponsor. We have a new sponsor at five o'clock who is making this show possible. Let's face it. After a night of drinking, I don't bounce back the next day like I used to. I have to make the choice. Either I have a great night or a great next day. That is, until I came across Z-Biotics. Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. And here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. So just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. 
I have to say, I've been doing Z-Biotics for about a year now. Whenever I have it, before I start drinking, I do notice a difference the next day. Uh, additionally, Z-Biotics has provided a special discount code for the 5 o'clock audience. It's Theral, T-H-E-R-A-L. Use this code when checking out and receive 15% off your first order. Thanksgiving is right around the corner, so make sure you stock up on Z-Biotics probiotic before the feast. You'll be thankful you did the next day. Let's go back to Seymour um, because this guy is such a character. And then I remember coming across one of your latest videos that was uh, Seymour reacts to Glenn Gould. And the subtitle was there's ice in his veins, Mm -hmm. which is Seymour on Gould. Um, And you've got a few of those videos we were talking about uh, earlier. What's going on there? Well, first I should say that Gould is, I mean, he's my, he's at the top for me. I mean, even higher than, than other pianists. Not, not every pianist. Okay. Some pianists. I, I, I did see that you played Goldberg variations, which is yeah. absolutely lovely. And I, that, that's an okay performance that's on the internet, but uh, I only did it because of Gould. I mean, in mo- and for better or worse, lots of people play that piece over the past 70 years because of of glenn gould's two two amazing recordings of it two very different recordings of it gould was almost not i almost wouldn't categorize him as a concert pianist well certainly not a concert pianist because he quit the stage gave he quit it up concert yeah. in 1963 uh one of the last famous ones he gave was with leonard bernstein the brahms concerto in in new york very very notoriously because of the not just the tempo he took but importantly the fact that he unified the tempo throughout he didn't make the slow theme you know he didn't make the love theme slower than the the opening thing like you're supposed to do and so and that's kind of the point gould challenged the supposed to's of how to interpret music and that ruffled some feathers and he also kind of you know did one of these to the whole concert establishment you're you're thumbing your nose thumbing the nose uh for those um, who are only listening, uh, and, uh, and that to this day, I mean, my, one of my teachers at Juilliard is Jerry Lowenthal, uh, is he wouldn't, you know, he doesn't have anything good to say about Gould. He's exactly Gould's age, you know, and, you know, knew Gould, met Gould, but, um, just completely, uh, diverge from Gould aesthetically as did most, I would say, concert pianist professors of of the 20th century because what Gould was doing wasn't you know he wasn't playing in he wasn't playing the game he wanted to reconceive musical works piano uh you know the piano repertoire um like a composer would he wanted to redesign the music uh in sound and and realize it according to new inner relationships and what this meant is he tried to make sense out of music in a new way. And he didn't take anything. He said, look, I'm not going to take make any assumptions about how this should go. I'm going to take the score, right? I'm going to create often very strict rhythmic kinds of relationships, very clear kinds of polyphony. And I'm going to make this piece sound like you've never heard it before. And that is something I appreciate a lot. And while I don't always do it and I don't always think it is appropriate, I think the spirit of that is actually something that will help keep the art of interpretation alive. Yes. And that the contrary is actually, uh, and I don't think Seymour is 
uh, the, um, a bad guy in this at all. But I think we have to be careful with some of the things Seymour says about the kind of just, you know, uh, reverence for the composer's intentions that we're supposed to feel because that's always been vague anyway. And then it ends up just being like, oh, you mean compose? you're you're playing the way Beethoven intended? You mean you're playing the way you feel like this should go? Just say it, you know? So at the end of the day, we're all realizing these works in ways that make sense to us and, and move us differently. And we should be able to accept the Seymour way of doing it and the Gould way of doing it and celebrate that, that's going to help us want to go listen to a, no, a new person play that same piece, maybe with a new conception. So I think Gould was a radical interpreter of, of piano music as a new form of art. And I I, I value that even if I don't uh, agree with half of the way he plays things. You know, I'm with Seymour uh, uh, being critical of, of, you know, how he plays Mozart in certain ways, et cetera. But I get it. I get the point. And so that's one thing there. But because I respect Seymour so much and I really value the the emotion he feels for, for music, um, I just wanted to I kind of wanted to be the, the the Don King. Nobody knows who that is anymore. But I wanted to put these two guys in the ring, these two boxers in a ring and just have them duke it out a bit, even though Gould passed 50 years ago, um, 40 years ago. So anyway, that was kind of the impetus behind it. But I learned a lot. And just to add one more comment to this, one thing I learned is that there's actually kind of two, two different aesthetics about how to, two different minds of thinking about piano music. One is, let's say Seymour's way. Music is personal. It's emotional. Okay. It's, it's it, full stop. And then Gould's actual, Gould's aesthetic is music is, I would say cosmic. Music is mm. not about how my heart. Mm -hmm. It's about the, the sort of rhythms and vibrations of the universe. When I hear Gould, I hear him trying to make music that sounds like it's eternal. These kinds of almost metronomic, hypnotic-like states you get into, or you know, it's like you're reaching nirvana and you lose the self, and that music is taking place up here okay. instead of down here in the heart. And I tell it's if you watch the whole, I think it's the Mozart uh, video with uh, with Seymour about Gould towards the end, or maybe it's the Brahms one towards the end. I think it's Brahms. We say some, I say something like that. And he said, no, he says, no, 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 no. Music is not, I don't want music up here. I want music in here. <laughs> and I think that's fascinating because it's the difference between wanting your heart warmed by something and wanting to meditate yourself into a state of feeling that blissful uh, loss of ego that can be so valuable sometimes. Being right? part and, of something else. Yeah, yeah. Which, and, which and that happens when you like strictly adhere to tempo, for instance. I think uh -huh. so because if you bend tempo too much, it sounds very personal. I am, yeah. I am molding the music to my. Whereas yeah. if you allow it to just fall where it feels like the universe is setting it, it puts you in a state that some people experience in meditation, others experience in prayer. But we've all experienced this sense of you lose yourself. Literally, we have that expression. I lost myself. I no longer feel this sense of ego driving and making decisions in the world. Mm -hmm. I lose myself and I get absorbed into this, this thing that's bigger than me. And it's yeah. giving me goosebumps talking about that right now. Cause I, for me, that's the, that's for me the big aesthetic goal. And it's not taking anything away from the smaller, but really important sense of feeling war heart warmed by something. I feel like they're compatible, but in any case, 
Seymour's on one side, Gould's on the other. I am a little bit more on the Gould side. Yeah. In that. yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Thank you. That was very well put. Uh, and these are two two major pulls, you know, as a musician, uh, whether to, you know, and, and if we go extremely with the personal subjective interpretation, it starts to sound sentimental yeah. and trashy, <laughs> right? right? But then you can become, well, what Seymour said is he's got ice in his veins. And um, and when you were talking, you so you talked about meditation, which, you know, transcendental meditation comes to the States in the 60s, right? So maybe there was something to that. I um, think there probably was. Honestly, I think Gould was kind of, funnily enough, a child of the 60s and 70s. Um, if you look, some people compare his practices of moving music to the studio, where there's new technologies where you can synthesize new kinds of sounds uh, people have drawn parallels with what the beatles were doing uh-huh. when they went from basically being live cover bands of 50s rock songs to by the late 60s manufacturing music in the studio and i always loved the late albums abbey road sergeant pepper so i'm on the late 60s side of the beatles and i think that's the gouldian way yeah. is, is let me let me actually like not worry if this is live or not I, I don't care how long it takes me and i don't care if it's one take or 80 takes i'm going to synthesize this piece of sound like you've never heard it before i'm into that but that's a recording mentality that's not a live performance mentality and there's another tension there the tension between the concert hall and the recording studio right which every musician knows about Right. And so as you were talking, um, I, I also thought about how, you know, it's the great age of science back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, science can do anything. They're, you know, they figured out physics. They're just starting to figure out uh, genetics. Um, I would say, you know, 20th century is just the great age of science. And so, so maybe that's part of it with Gould, this idea of trying to imagine an objective interpretation, which is what science tries to do. There is no objective. Even in science, it's just people agreeing through peer review. You know, they call it intersubjectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the age of technology coming in, the, um, you know, as a result of the flight to the moon and, and all of that. And so we had these breakthroughs in technology with the circuits and computers and, 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 and all that. And I think it created a crisis for music in a way that um, like the photograph did for painters, right? Well, absolutely. And and I think Walter Benjamin said about that, about photography, you know, it's, it's not that, you know, this is changing, this is making painters have to, you know, um, basically paint new things that was happening too. He said, it just completely transformed our notion of what art is now that we're able to capture, like, you know, the actual likenesses in, in the world and reproduce them so easily. That has everything to do with why art took a direction towards new forms of abstract expression, for example, among very exactly because the photograph took care of the realism side. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is a whole big topic. But one thing, one last thing I'll say, at least about Gould with respect to that is Gould was this funny mix of, of of a modernist. I'll define modernist in a second in this context, and which is another awful term, postmodernist, but at least. He's both in this sense. He was a modernist, actually, in the second Viennese school sense. He was a student of, a real appreciator of Schoenberg and Webern and Berg. And what he loved about their way of looking at art was they wanted to create these 
self-enclosed art artistic holes that were that were basically universes unto themselves that were had laws that were self-determining inside of the, you know so like a, a, Schoen a Schoenberger Webern composition was completely you know removed from the world in the sense of like it its meaning is fully determined by the relationships inside of it very different than say you know somebody who writes music that's immediately supposed to uh, appeal to an audience for example that's that's music that points outward so Gould liked this hyper modern music that points inward is based on relationships and actually if you look at Webern uh, Anton Webern made a transcription of a Bach uh, musical offering for orchestra so it's a 20th century modernist orchestration of a Bach piece and it's wild it sounds like how Gould thinks about interpreting Bach's music at the piano it's like you hear individual voices as their own as their own sort of living entities and and they're sort of talk, speaking to each other and he's accentuating in voices in ways that Bach didn't think of but makes sense in the 20th century so I think that's that Gould took that modernist spirit of creating these autonomous self-enclosed works of art but actually applying that to piano and interpretation which is wild but he was also a postmodernist because he was somebody who completely rejected these mainstream uh you know authority figures grant really i you know the, the buzzword is grand narratives about how music should be and and pursued technology wherever it took it you know and that's not something necessarily modernists were doing they they had they were very had very mixed feelings about how to use technology and and especially the commercial mass production of technology gould kind of embraced it in a weird way he was a um he was a pop culture figure and and he wanted to do that he wanted to do more film he wanted to do mixed media he wanted he didn't want music to stay in this in this sort of hole he wanted it to be on video on he wanted to make weird uh kinds of he would be a podcaster he'd be a youtuber today oh he absolutely i mean he was on the cbc all the time right doing programs exactly. for so a general would, audience talking to them and they're all extremely smart uh yeah. i mean this guy is just rattling it off one after another the way he plays the piano so that's Gould, but there's a lot of other pianists and i feel like um one of the cool things about tone bass is even though i i've had my Gould moment he might still be at the top of my list but i'm also kind of past that i don't have my I've I've killed all my heroes as you're supposed to do. Mm. Uh, you know, if if you want to get at some point be your mm. own artist, wonder if I have. Well, I bet you have on some level because yeah. even ones that you still look up to, you've you've. Well, I don't I don't know you that well, Theral, but you know at some point you start at least thinking about alternative ways or yeah. or integrating yeah. the thoughts of your heroes into your own way of doing things, which is going to differ from how your heroes would have done them. So yeah, no, I I, I think I have. Um, I, I think most of the time they were just dying off right and left in front of me. I wasn't even having to do anything. <laughs> um, I think we got to have heroes. I was just saying it's better if kids have, you know, posters of Glenn Gould on their wall. They have they have Messi and, and LeBron on their wall. Um, but if you want to reach that point, if you want to go even further, as maybe this is more speaking as an artist and, and less of a fan as a fan. Maybe fans keep their heroes. They're not trying to play music, but I'm trying to play music I, i'm curious if i can play it in new radical ways i'm not saying i'm the best pianist in the world by any means but i do think even ordinary pianists amateur pianists students we should be thinking a little more like gould what is this piece of paper as i guess it's on an ipad now what is this score in front of me what do these notes mean well right now they mean too much for too many people 
I should play it the way it goes. And the way it goes is how I heard it on a recording or how my teacher said I should do it. And it's like, no, no, no. This is actually a time where you can be the one time you can be creative as a pianist. You didn't write the notes, but you get to be the director of how these notes, you could be the costume designer, the set designer, the director, the key grip. I don't even know what they are. The dramaturg, who knows? Everything goes into putting on a staged play there's an analogy for what you're doing as a single individual when you pick up the script, right? The script of uh, of a great piece, which is we call it a score. And you sit there and how can I deliver these lines in what sort of environment to make this particular version of, you know, Shakespeare's, <laughs> uh, you know, Romeo and Juliet or Beethoven's, you know, Pathetique Sonata or whatever, like you've never seen it before. And, and we see that in stage plays. We see directors do cool new things that modernize old, old uh, art forms, you know, and I think in a way Gould was doing that, but I want, I want to do that with music. And I think, um, I think I'm really excited when I hear a new pianist who's playing something for me that I've heard a hundred times or a hundred thousand times maybe, but in a way that is a revelation, you know, and I think we should be in the business of revelations here with with this with piano repertoire so um speaking of beethoven i loved your interview with him <laughs> well you know i'm not you know, so you're starting to catch on to the fact that i'm a vampire and i've actually been around <laughs> okay uh, yeah listen Lud ludwig and i you know, we would it, it was a love-hate relationship now uh <laughs> yeah we could go on so there was a, a book i'm reading um just recently out called why beethoven and it's written by uh, this um, English, this guy from London, Norman Lebrecht. Yeah. And he's got a channel um, online, uh, you know, uh, is about music and stuff. Um, but his book is so much fun. And the way he organized it is 100 Beethoven recordings. Mm -hmm. And he's going through them. And with each piece, he may give a little background. You know, this is where Beethoven was pissing somebody off here. And, you know, a little just fun. Then he gets into the piece. Then he, at the end, he talks about, you know, recommended recordings and recordings that he thinks are shit. Um, but it, uh, I bring this up because, you know, he's not a musician. You know, he's just a listener. And I, I said, your channel has broad appeal. What about all the music listeners? Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I spent hundreds of hours in CD stores. We don't really do that anymore. Hey, but I'm, I, I'm old enough to remember Tower Records. Tower Records, yeah. And I loved uh, just, you know, the, the various recordings, like you say, the different versions. You were talking about different versions of, of theater. Um and and also that's what your channel has kind of penetrated in in you know uh having a pianist there talking about oh i can do it this way i can do it that way yeah i um, the art of listening art of listening so one thing i am proud of again i i read every comment not because i'm so obsessed with what people think but I, i'm very curious actually i am i am obsessed with people what people think it, in this respect i I put this stuff out there. Lots of people watch it. And I'm very curious what, what the audience is, is experiencing and who they are. And I realize the, the audience is quite diverse. And some of them are just listeners, music lovers, let's say they go to concerts, they collect CDs, and they might not necessarily want to touch, you know, sit there and touch the piano, but they're fascinated when they watch others they're, do it. They're fascinated. And, and yeah. uh, it's a big audience and they know a lot. 
Okay. You Another know, book I'm some reading. Of them know more than me. There is a type, and I knew them especially when I lived in Manhattan. There's a type of record collector aficionado in both the classical and jazz worlds who, and some of them are actually producer. I, I know one um, who's, who's a, 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 I mean, he was a pianist, so maybe he doesn't qualify, but you know, now he's a, a recording engineer, but he's one of these types, but some people are, have nothing to do with the music world and they're just, but they're just the biggest fans. And sometimes they'll know more than anybody in the world because they're spending all their time collecting recordings and comparing them. And, and, and they, they'll come to a concert and afterward, they're going to, they want to talk your ear off about like the, you know, the, the, have you heard this? Have you heard that? And I'm like, actually, I haven't, you know, like, wow, you, <laughs> you've listened way more than I have. I know. These I love people, talking to these people. I love it. Oh, I know. I mean, I look, I am one sometimes, but then I also have to admit, I practice a lot. I make all these videos. So I actually, I actually don't get to listen as much as some people do. And I'm kind of jealous. So it's important that we, that these people are held up as, you know, a, a real important like player in, again, participant in the bigger world of music making, because of course we make music so people can listen. And so we should kind of hold up the great listeners of the world the same way we do the great performers. Why not? I mean, they're in some ways they know way more about what what's going on than the performers do. So um, I'm all Thanks about for the, going with me on that one. That's cool. Yeah. I just yeah. wanted to add to that, that some people on the, in the comments said, I never even listened to the Rachmaninoff third concerto until I watched this video you made about, you know, Yunchan Lim playing it. And now I, I've watched the video 10 times and I've gone and started listening and comparing different rock three. These are this is this is from people who didn't, didn't listen to classical music, not just piano or Rachmaninoff, classical music. And they stumbled on my channel. They got caught up in the Yunchan uh, phenomenon after he won the Clyburn. And which is fine. We should capitalize on that. We should we should take advantage of that moment. And I think I did. And I think I actually helped get people who weren't even interested in the whole domain of classical music to enter it with love and interest and, and actually kind of obsession. And I think I like to say that I think I've helped create some new listeners, like new aficionado listeners who are now like you know, they're starting with Rachmaninoff, but they'll get to Grieg, they'll get to Prokofiev, they'll get to Schumann, they'll get to Beethoven. You know, if they really, you got to start somewhere and you're like, okay, I, I've listened to a hundred Rachmaninoff recordings now. Let's, let's try a new thing, you know? And that's what I was like as a teenager that like, I was the rabid, you know, listener um, when I was younger. And I, that's where I picked up most of my tricks <laughs> and I don't listen as much anymore because I have to do too much work, you know, life got <laughs> Yeah. Well, but you're making a difference for others and that's, yeah, I love the way you put it. Um, and that's why I wanted to have you come on, you know, and, and try and let people know that, uh, this, this is just really entertaining stuff. Okay. Before we go, I was promised that I would, um, talk about Garrick Olson, um, interview <laughs> that you did. Um, he has been one of the outstanding stars on the channel. And what's been so fun for me is I've heard him live many times, but I had never heard him talk. You know, I didn't know he, what he was like as a person. And so you're sitting with him there at the piano um, and you start talking about Chopin, but then, you know, it goes here, it goes there. You start talking about how other composers do it. I think he talked about Chopin being um, a great melodist. And at one point he says, um, Chopin, so this is the really cool stuff. Chopin suffers from being too listenable. Yeah. <laughs> right. We were just talking about um Schoenberg and whatever and subjective and um and 
uh, and he's like, yeah, anything that's gorgeous uh, cannot be nutritious, right? There is that crowd. And he tells a story of playing a concert in Buenos Aires. And some of the serious classical people backstage tell him, oh, the old ladies will love that. (laughs) So then he goes on to say, there is something to that. He actually agrees with it. Yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. We give old ladies a hard time because they like Chopin, but like who, and then I think he says something like, but come on, like who, who can resist it? Um, But I have a, like on that note, and then I'll just say a few words about Garrick, who is, I, he is kind of a hero. I said, I'm not allowed to, I have to kill my heroes. I'm not killing Garrick. I mean, he's <laughs> okay. I, cool. so, much, found one. so much to emulate about him. Uh, no, no, but like, um, it's funny. Cause when I was in my Gould phase, I was going around playing Bach for people and guess what? Lots of people don't want to hear Bach. Hmm. And so when they asked me to play something, you know, I'll go to a patron's house or a, 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 I don't have any patrons. What am, I, what am I talking about? A mentor or, you know, I knew, I knew a lot of rich people who would, uh, uh, I would teach their kids music. And so they keep me around and they say, hey, play something, Ben. And all I had for a while was like really dense Bach to play for them. Like the B flat minor prelude and fugue from the second book, just because I heard Gould heard it, play it. And then I had to learn it. And so I'm playing this thing and it's like, Beam, ba, ba, bum, bum. is that it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's bum, 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 bum is the fugue anyway. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. That's not the one I'm thinking of. I was Bach wrote a lot of music, I, but I would I would start playing this, and I would just kind of sense the disappointment in the room because what oh. they really wanted me to play <laughs> is a Chopin knock. I have felt that before. Yeah, I sneak Bach in after yeah. I've played some Chopin. Well, I think this is why we got I got to have the YouTube channel because I could I know I could get that lady to like Bach, but I got to <laughs> I kind of got to talk to her about it, you know. But <laughs> Garrick, so um, Garrick is. But I thought I, I I don't know anybody else like him because on the one hand he's he literally plays everything. I mean his his repertoire is is absolutely massive, uh, and he's still touring with, with the exception of the COVID year, more than fifty years now unbroken, and most pianists get worn out by that. It gives him energy. It makes him young. He's st- I've heard him play recently live. It it hmm. it doesn't sound like he's seventy five. Um, it, oh wow, he, he's seventy-five. Wow, he's the most relaxed piano. I know that's kind of not always the best word about piano technique, but he's the most facile pianist I've ever seen. When I saw him with at Disney Hall doing all Chopin concert, it, he looked like a word that he taught me—a prestidigitator, a, a, a magician of, of the fingers, basically. And it looked like he was doing nothing at all. It was just sort of yeah, this, just kind of throwing his hands around. And and but magic was coming out of his hat, you know, as he was doing it. So he can be that dude who you'd think would have the biggest ego in the world. And yet you get him on camera and yes, he's going to talk your ear off, but it's because he actually is really down to earth and he'll talk to anybody about music. He'll, I've introduced him to students that he has no reason to care about and he'll gather, he'll have them gather around and without, he'll, he'll lose track of time and he'll just start showing him, them things that he found in the, in the Chopin bar curl. You, he he got in touch with Seymour Bernstein because he was fascinated by something Seymour said about hairpins, and and Garrick had me put him in touch with Seymour Bernstein to come full circle. So now I got Garrick Olson and Seymour Bernstein on an email thread talking about how to interpret romantic hairpins. Is it a crescendo? Does it mean to be flexible with time? And Garrick is humble enough to say, you know what? I've read about this. I think you might be right. You're onto something here. This is one of the great Chopin interpreters of our, uh, interpreters of our time. And he's still willing to take, you know, to learn from other people. So he's a student of 
the art form like nobody I know. And he's the only, he's one of the few who can actually introspect about his artistry and his physical technique. Most pianists don't ask them about their techniques. They get very insecure about that because they don't know how to tell you what they're doing. He can sit down and like break down the mechanics of how he's playing a Chopin etude. This is this is the you know brute intellectual side of him. Um, you know, I mean, he does have this wonderful feel for Chopin and could be very subjective, but you can tell he's also really uh, a big thinker. He's got mind and heart, and they're both enormous. And usually, musicians have kind of either one or the other. <laughs> either they have a big heart and not a lot's going on up here, or they've got yeah. a big mind. This is maybe Gould is more like this. And I, I think Gould had a heart, whatever. But Seymour would say Gould had no heart. He had ice no heart. His, his brain might be the size of the universe, but, you know, he doesn't move me. You know, he, nothing he's ever played has moved me, says says Seymour. But uh, Garrick is a rare, not just pianist, but artist, I would say, who has got this and this uh, almost unlimited. And it's just he's a magnanimous person. He's a giant uh, spirit and a giant man. And it's just being around him is so inspirational. I can't wait till the next time I get to do it. Cool. Cool. And, and what you were talking about there, just to wrap this up, um, and talk about your platform one last time, your platform there is actually becoming a kind of moderator between, you know, great pianists. Um, and so it's, it's just, it, I think you, you're onto something. It's bringing us closer to the pianist, the listener to the pianist, it's pianists and pianists. Uh, it's super cool and I heartily recommend it to our audience also the Tone Base website this has been terrific fun Ben Loudy thank you Let's, let's keep in touch there I hope we can do it again maybe next year sometime